0: Acts chapter 13 verses 13 through 25. And it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness. After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for New City Church. Uh, God, would your spirit be alive this morning, Lord? Would you speak through Ryan? Would it be less of us and more of you this morning? we thank you, we love you, and pray all this in your son's name. Amen.
1: We are in a series where we're walking through the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the story of what happened after Jesus ascended into heaven and sent his spirit into his people. How it lived among his people, how it how it worked in the world, and how the gospel uh, went forth. And today we come upon this text uh, where, where the apostle Paul, who was this guy that was blind, uh, blinded by the Holy Spirit, uh, received both his physical sight and spiritual sight back, we see that in Acts chapter 9, how he begins to be set on mission uh, for the sake of the gospel around the world. And and as he's sent, uh, he begins preaching sermons uh, as he's planting churches throughout the world. And this is actually his first sermon that he ever preaches that we're on today. And if I had to kind of sum it up, um, I I would say that that it's about this. It's about God's covenant love. It's about his promise uh, to keep and sustain us uh, in the midst of our disobedience and our rebellion. As I was thinking about this, this topic of covenant and promise, uh, I, I couldn't help but think about uh, this, this guy that I grew up with named Justin. Uh, Justin was a, a, a neat guy, a baseball player with me, and he, um, he, he, would all, he had this bad habit of always saying, I promise after everything that he said. I don't know if anybody knows anyone like that, but it would be like, hey, Ryan, you want to come over? Uh, we're having pizza tonight. I promise. You know, it'd be just things like that. And so what began to happen in our friendship is it just began to to, to be hard to believe, difficult to believe Justin because you didn't know if he was telling the truth or if he was not telling the truth. And so, uh, you know, this all really culminated, our friendship really culminated. This guy was in my wedding, great guy. It really culminated our trust and our bond uh, in this one hot July night in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, when we were slated to go to the county fair and hang out together. Okay, so what happened was he had promised we were gonna go to the fair together, we were gonna hang out, we were gonna eat funnel cakes, ride the scrambler, the whole bit, right? It was gonna be fun. But then all of a sudden that week, Justin gets a girlfriend. Yeah, exactly. And and so, Justin had promised her to take her to the fair the same night that he had promised to go to the fair with me We're gonna have a bro night and so I said Justin dude You promised that you were going to take we were gonna to go to the fair together and and now you've got you know Tracy And and he he said, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna to go together. I said fine. Let's do it so here I am third wheeling along with this this new couple at the county fair in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, and, and we just finished a funnel cake, and it's me, and Tracy, and Justin, and we're hanging out, and, and we get on the scrambler together, which is this ride that spins around really fast and is, really doesn't have a purpose other than to make you feel nauseous, you know what I'm talking about? And so we're on the scrambler together, and the way that this ride is set up is that it's those two on one side, and it's me on the other side, and we're facing each other. And as the ride begins to spin, Justin starts to get nauseous, and his face begins to turn pale, and he recalls the funnel cake that he had just consumed. And as he, the ride is spinning, he begins to look at me like this, and I'm going, no! And then all of a sudden, here's where our friendship was really secured, he turns in a second and goes, Whoa! on his girlfriend, and I believe this promises after that. So anyway, uh, I texted him this week and I said, hey man, um, do you remember that time you threw up on your, your girlfriend in seventh grade? And he goes, oh yeah. <laughs> anyway, so uh, we got a good laugh out of that. I don't think she did though, so... Uh, you know, what we're coming up on today in this text in the book of Acts is really about the promise of God. And we're we're, we're separating the sermon that Paul preaches because it's just got too much richness in it for us to cover in, in one sermon. And so uh, what we begin to, to say, or we begin to see it rather, is, is that the promise of God really means something. So, So you see in the first few verses in Acts 13... 13 through 15, it's kind of the narrative of what happens after they leave Cyprus. Um, you know, Paul and his companions, they, they begin leaving, they begin going and preaching the gospel uh, in other places, and then they get to this, they go further north uh, into modern day Turkey, and they get to this area called Antioch and Pisidia. Now there was like a hundred Antiochs in this day, so it wasn't the same Antioch we looked at a while ago, so This is a different Antioch in Turkey, and, and when they get into the city of Antioch... Uh, it's the Sabbath day, and they go to the synagogue, and they sit down in the synagogue in order to worship and be, a, be among people that have something familiar with them. They, these are Jewish men. And so, so they come in, and they're, they're there. And in a synagogue service, uh, there's, there's, there's some readings and there's sort of exhortation of the Word. And so they had, it says they had read from the law, and the prophets there would be a, a reading from the law, which is the, the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, known as the Torah, uh, there would be a reading from that. That had happened, and then there would be a reading from the prophets too, uh, the the major, minor prophets that we see in the Old Testament. and And after this happens, the um, the guy that's leading the synagogue, there one of the elders, uh, he he says, um, you know, brothers. He looks at Paul and his companions, their their new faces. He says, hey, if you have any encouragement for the people, we'd love to hear it. If you have anything that you could share with us that would encourage our souls. We'd love to hear it, and that's, that's really where we pick up um, with our sermon today, because what he begins to share is really all the dirty laundry of Israel's story. I mean, have you, did you hear the text that we read? It, it talks about how they were held captive uh, in, in, in Egypt and in, in slavery and, and how, what God had done in the midst of that. It, it talks about David, a man after his own heart. David was a dirty, filthy, rotten sinner that couldn't serve in our children's ministry. He couldn't pass the background check. You know, he was a murderer. He talks about all of these things in Israel's history that all have this one thing in common. God has redeemed the story of Israel. God has been working in the story of Israel, and he begins to recount that all the way up until the fulfillment of the promise that God has given them in Jesus. And, and, um, you know, the only way this could possibly be encouraging to God's people is if somehow God could redeem it all and use it all for his glory and his purpose in their lives. And, And we think about the application of this to our lives The the only way that all of our story um, could be known and and God could still love us would be that if he could redeem it somehow, if he could somehow work in the midst of our brokenness. And he can. And so what we begin to see is that it's really good for us as God's people to look back so that we can live forward. It's it's not about just, just what's in front of us, it's about what God has done in our story in our, in our past. And so our big idea of where we're going today uh, is this. We walk in the promise of redemption because God has kept his promise to redeem us through Jesus. So what, what is the promise? What is the promise? Uh, another word for promise in the Bible is this word covenant. It's a word that we talk about pretty often around here at New City. Um, and, and if you are a member of New City Church, you are called a covenant partner, right? And, and I want to talk a little bit more about that, but, but what, is, what is this promise, what is this covenant in the Bible? And when we see it unfold like a rose throughout history, it just keeps on getting more beautiful and more beautiful, but it's this, that God will be our God, and we will be his people. That's the promise that we see, the covenant that we see, the overarching covenant that, that, that's kind of supersedes everything else in the Bible, kind of, everything else kind of comes into line with that, that whatever it takes, God will be our God, and we will be his people. Whatever it takes, he'll do that. It's a relationship with God on, on his terms. Now, you know, in, in, the, in the garden, back in Genesis, there is a covenant with Adam, and Hosea chapter 6-7 tells us this. It doesn't say it explicitly in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, but, but Hosea says that Adam had broken this covenant just like everyone else. Um, so this agreement is this, if you obey Adam, then you will live. And then he says, but if you disobey and you eat of the the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the only tree I've told you not to eat of, every other tree you can eat from, then you will surely die. So those were the consequences of breaking the promise there, that, that, that covenant, that, that relationship. And you guys know the story. What happens? Absolute, utter betrayal. Now, I'm going to ask you to go here with me for a second. I want you to think, this might not be easy, I want you to think about betrayal in your own life. Um, I want you to go here emotionally with me. um, Who did you entrust yourself to? Who did you care for? Who did you give to? Who did you serve only to be betrayed? It's, It's painful just to think about it. Some of us are boiling even just thinking about going there. How did it feel? What did they say? What did you want to do? Betrayal. As we sit here and we think about this for a moment, we catch a glimpse of what God maybe felt like when we betrayed him. When, when Adam and Eve betrayed him, we betrayed him. And every person who's lived and will live on the face of the planet has betrayed the law of God because they've sinned. So, so as, we, as we think about this, and we think about what God would maybe want to do if he was like us. I want you to hear the difference in what God does. So God is dishing out the consequences of sin, and we see this beautiful promise in Genesis 3.15. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and flip there and, and underline it. It's, it's this beautiful kind of first glimpse of the good news of what Jesus will come and do for us. He's, give, he's given the consequences to, to, to Adam and Eve, and then he'll give the consequences to the serpent here in Genesis 3.15, and he says this, I'll put enmity, strife, between you and the woman. He's saying this to Satan. And between your offspring, the offspring of Satan, and, and her offspring, um, humanity. And, and, and he, her offspring, so, so Adam and Eve's offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, let me ask you this. What is more damaging, a blow to the head or a blow to the heel? A blow to the head, right? So there's this promise that from the offspring of Adam and Eve will be one that will ultimately crush Satan and his schemes. And so we see this, this, this promise there that, that God has not left his people even though he could have just ended the human race at that, that point. Oh, there's two of you, you're sinful, we're done. He could have done that. It would have been well within reason, well within His justice, well within His love. It would have been well within everything for Him to do that, but He did not. And then we see this, the promise of God begin to unfold even more through through Noah and his family. There's a, they're spared. Uh, even though they're sinful, by faith they're spared and they're, they're covered in the ark. and And all of the rest of humanity is destroyed except Noah... And his family. And then we get to Abraham. Abraham is this joker from the land of Ur who's as sinful as anyone's ever seen a sinner. You know, he is, he's is a really sinful guy. And then God meets him. And he comes to him. And here's what he says to him in Genesis chapter 17, verses 6 through 8. He says, Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Now keep in mind, he and his wife are in their 90s at this point. Okay, so you get the picture. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. It's kind of like, ha ha, yeah, right. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, Abraham. And I will establish my covenant, my promise, between me and your offspring. After you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. How long? Everlasting. Does that ever end? No. It's an everlasting covenant that he makes, a promise that he makes to be their God and them to be his people. And he says, "I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. There's this promise that God's going to do whatever it takes. it's it, theologically speaking, it's called a unilateral covenant, meaning that God's one way love and his one way, you know, sovereignty will secure the promise for his people. This is, this is what he does. And so we begin to see this promise. So let's, let's flip back to our text in Genesis 13 and we'll get into the, the points of the sermon here. The first one is this God kept the promise. God kept the promise. He did whatever it took to keep the promise. So, Let's just read through Genesis 13, 16 through 25. And what I want to highlight is at least 10 times where God is the subject of the action that has secured the people of Israel. God is the one doing the work, in other words. Let's read through it. So he says, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. Who did the work? God chose our fathers. And then what did God do after He chose our fathers and made the people of Israel? He made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. While they were in slavery, He made the people great. He gave them great fruit from their loins. He gave lots of descendants, you know, lots of people, lots of power, even though they were under the thumb of the Pharaoh at the time. And and then he led them out. He, he did the work. He's the one that led them out of Egypt. You, you remember the story where, where the plagues happen. And, and, and the, the, the last plague comes and the Pharaoh says, you know, get out of here. And they run. They make a beeline. And the Red Sea opens up and they cross through it. And God is doing all of the work. And then for about 40 years, they're complaining in the wilderness while God is guiding them around with a, with a cloud by day and a, and a pillar of fire by night as he is leading them to the land of Canaan that he promised Abraham and his descendants. And the Bible says he put up with them for about 40 years. Uh, you think about that, and it's actually positive language, but, but he, he, he dealt with them for 40 years, and they're grumbling and they're, they're complaining. And what did he do? He gave them their land as an inheritance. He kept his promise to them. Even though it took about 450 years, as the scriptures say, as he fought off everyone and he destroyed seven nations to give them the land, God did the work. And then the people weren't settled in that, and so God gave them judges. Well, then they saw that other nations had kings, and so they said, God, we want a king. And so what did God do? God gave them a king. He gave them Saul. Saul. And then after 40 years, Saul uh, proved out to be not so great of a king, and so God removed Saul. God did all of this. And then God gives them King David, this this wimpy, puny little guy out that that, that Jesse can't even find when he comes to look for him, out in the the field caring for the sheep because none of the other brothers wanted to do it. And he goes out and says, this is the next king. And God made David great, even though he had his flaws. God did it all. And from David, what we see is that Jesus will come as promised. God kept his promise. Now, why would would this be important? Why would you start a sermon like this when you show up in a Jewish synagogue? Because he wanted to show that God is always the one taking the initiative in our relationship. Some of you are discouraged in here this morning because you don't sense the power and pleasure and presence of God in your life. And and typically what we do is we base that on our performance and our ability to, to keep a good relationship with God. And what we realize in Israel's history and in our history, that we cannot keep up with it. And so what we're tempted to believe is that somehow God doesn't keep his promise when we can't keep our end of the deal to obey him. And what we see in the scriptures is that grace was not dependent upon their obedience. That that obedience flows from a heart that's been touched by grace, but God is not saying you've got to live this way for me to come and to save you and to redeem you. It's God that is the one that takes initiative. And there's this beautiful word in the Hebrew language called his "said," and it's a word for love, and it's this covenant-keeping love. You see it kind of reverberated throughout the entire Old Testament, and it describes what Paul's preaching here, that God has a long-lasting, enduring, eternal love for his people. And that, my friends, is what Paul wanted to proclaim as he planted the church and preached the gospel, that that what you're looking for is Jesus. And and, and to all of us in here, we need to hear that this morning. The the longings of your heart, the brokenness that you experience, the the failures that are a part of your story, all find their fulfillment in Jesus. And, And Paul preaches this. He is so committed to his promise to us and to his glory that he'll do whatever it takes. Now, we like to throw around a word here at New City, and, and many churches do. This word uh, is community. Now, uh, it's a good word. Um, covenant is the Bible's word for community. But, but here's where community kind of gets it wrong. Community says, uh, for the most part, what it means is, is that, hey, as long as we can, can kind of keep up with similar interests and, and be cordial with one another, then we can have this presence of friendship and relationship. What the word covenant does is it takes it down a deeper level. Uh, And and what you begin to see is that that what holds people together is God. And this is what we mean when we call our members at New City Church, a little plug here, shameless plug, covenant partners, is that God is so committed to us that we can commit to one another. Now, what the world says is that, hey, if things start get, getting tough or you, you kind of go through a rough stretch or, or people, you know, really are, are, are kind of in a tiff, then we, can, then we can either fight or we can fight, right? We can, we can either engage or we can run. But what covenant says is that we stay in the ring because the power of the Holy Spirit gives us power in whatever we experience in this life because God is so committed to us that he'll never leave us. God is interested in this idea of Covenant. And I even want you to consider that, uh, this idea of covenant partnership in New City Church this morning. We're going to have another class the second week of, of August. To be a covenant partner of a church means that we see ourselves on this common mission together, empowered by God. It's not, it, 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 it pushes this idea, this shallow idea of of consumerism aside, and it says, no, that's not the real thing. The real thing is that God gives us the power to stay in each other's lives together. Um, community, re- biblical community, is more about contributing than consuming. And, and we get that from God when we see how God relates to his people. And when his spirit it comes and lives inside of us through the work of Jesus, through faith in the work of Jesus, we have this power to be more of a contributor than a consumer in our relationships because God is the one that is filling our tanks. So so God keeps the promise. What do we see Jesus do? Jesus fulfills the promise. Jesus fulfills the promise. So, you know, there's this, the, the verse here in, in uh, Acts chapter 13 where it says that David was a man after God's own heart and that one of David's descendants would be the next Messiah, would be the next king. But this is, this is a really a quote from From Psalm chapter 89, verses 3 and 4, and I'll read it to you real quick, where we get this kind of deeper dive of what the promise is and how God secures it. Psalm 89, 3 and 4, it won't be on the screen, Uh, I'll read it to you. Uh, This is is God saying, um, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. A A binding relationship that depends on God. I've made a covenant with him. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. God gives David a promise that eternal life will once again be restored to the people of God. Now, why why is that a big deal to us? Because we live in such a temporal world that we can't hardly think of what it would be like to actually long and live in eternity. I mean, sometimes we just, we just, we think of eternity as kind of this thing that's out there and maybe if it happens, it's good. I'm not real sure if it will or not, so let's just make the best of this life while we can. But David begins to see that God is serious about his promise as he thinks back. And then Paul, as Paul looks at David's story, he thinks, okay, God has actually done what he said he was going to do. And so what does that do? It begins to give us confidence in the work of God. Confidence in the promise that He would keep the promise even to us. Acts 13.23 declares this. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as promised. As promised. And you see this theme where God continues to raise up the misfit to declare his, His mercy and His goodness and His grace to the people of God throughout all generations. Jesus, uh, you know, people would say, Jesus, like, from Nazareth? I mean, are you kidding me? Like, he was another link in that chain of God doing unthinkable things through really humble, simple people. And God begins to do this work through Jesus. And so, so his promise is this, to secure his children forever and to give them an eternal Inheritance, right? So, in, in with Abraham, we see him promised land and offspring. Okay, so we can look at that physically speaking. Okay, he's going to give them the land of Canaan. That's great. Okay, he does this 450 years later. They lose it. Um, you get the picture. Okay, he's going to get, make give them descendants. He does that. But what he was actually promising? There's a, there's another layer to what he was actually promising. It's this spiritual inheritance. It's this spiritual family that he was promising. That now what we see in Jesus is that it's coming true. That he's adopted a family back to himself. And he's, Jesus has come, in John 14 it says, he's come to prepare a home for us. It has many rooms. And Jesus is going to go to his father and prepare that so that we can go and be with him forever. Jesus is doing the work. So, so how does this covenant? Okay, this is good news. We're looking at this. We want this. How does this covenant actually become actuated in our hearts? How does it become God's covenant to us? Right. When you look at the, the Jewish um, traditions, you have a, a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, and, and what that was in Jewish culture was the moment that a child who had who had received the sign of the covenant, they'd been circumcised. Um, that would be the moment where they chose to become covenant keepers. So as church, what we see is that even in, in Jesus and in, in, his, in his reign as he secured this promise for us, we have to choose to become covenant keepers. Jesus is the one that keeps it, but by faith, we have to choose to follow him. And John 3 talks about this. Let's listen to John chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, uh, the most familiar verse in the whole Bible. It's really good news to us this morning. For God so loved the world, Let's stop right there. Who so loved the world? God. Okay, God so loved the world with this covenant-keeping love, right? He kept the promise. What does he do as he loves the world that he gave? So God loves, and so he gives his son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Okay, to perish was to prove that the, the, the eternal covenant wasn't true for you, right? It wasn't actuated in your heart. So whoever believes in the Son doesn't perish, but but, whoever, but he has eternal life. And then he goes on to say this, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. That wasn't the purpose of sending Jesus. Now, let me keep reading. But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. And this this pricks my heart a little bit this morning. That the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. So, so what we see here is that. The way that this covenant, this promise of God to give us eternal life, to give us eternal joy, to give us everything that our hearts were made for and longed for, only comes through Jesus. Now, all of those parts of our story, all of those parts of Israel's story matter because they teach us to look for Jesus. Think about that. The things that you don't want to to remember in your story have somehow, some shape, some form played into you now looking for Jesus. You showing up in a high school or in a middle school gym to hear about Jesus. Somehow, all of those things in your story have played to the place where you're right here, right now, looking for Jesus. We, this, this applies to us through faith. Now, now, those who do not believe in Jesus are condemned, he says. And why? Because we love darkness more than we do light. We like the idea of light, but we don't like the cost of light. We don't like saying, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. Pay for my sin. I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. I can do nothing without you. We don't like putting ourselves in that place and actually believing that. And the Bible says that if you don't put yourself in that place, you're already condemned. Does the work of Jesus fulfill the promise of God in your heart this morning? The, The promise to make you an eternal being to be with an eternal God forever, that he will be your God and you will be his people and he'll do whatever it takes and you believe that by faith. Does the promise of God, the work of Jesus, fulfill the promise in your heart this morning or are you still scrambling to try to make a way for yourself? How is it that you can know that you will be with God and he will be pleased with your life? I mean, wouldn't that be great To get off the hamster wheel of performance, of trying to be the better husband, to be the better father, the better son, the better church member, the better employee, to get off and to begin living by faith. Because we have this convoluted mixture of works and faith that we try to live by, and the promise of eternity is not for the person in that place. It's by faith alone that we see that the promise applies to our lives. It's only through faith. So, so what, in this equation, Jesus plus what equals everything to you? What is it in that equation that you would fill in the blank with? Because what John says, and he writes about in John 3, is that it's Jesus plus nothing else that equals everything. And that when we wholly lean upon the promise of God through faith, that's when we are most secure. So when, when we are least involved In the equation of our salvation, we are most secure. That's not how I live a lot of times. And you know why? Because our lives are driven by this idea of contract instead of covenant. So so what does it feel feel like to be driven by this idea of contract? I mean, you think about it, your mortgage, your cell phone, maybe your car note, Um, everything, contract, which means this. You get to keep this thing if you can live up to these standards. You can live in this house as long as you make the payment. And what we do is we carry this into our relationship with God. If I can keep up with what I think the standard is, and and a lot of times we'll lower the bar uh, to kind of be a palatable standard, and we'll punish ourselves when we can't, line up with that standard. If we can do that, then we get to be in relationship with God. Then we get to receive joy. Then we get to be secure in his hands. But if I cannot keep the contract in perfect obedience, if I, if I miss a payment of good deeds, we punish ourselves and we don't let ourselves experience the joy that comes from knowing God through the work of Jesus. Is, is this just me or is this somebody else? I mean, you guys experience this. And what, what we fail to see is that our eternity, even though our lives are driven by con- contract on this, this world, our eternity is driven by covenant through the work of a covenant keeper uh, in our place, that he'd be a descendant of Adam who would crush the, the, the head of the serpent, who would be a son of Abraham and a king that would come from the line of David who would come and keep the covenant in our place. And what do we do instead a lot of times? The repo man shows up at the door, taking the house back. Give me that new iPhone X. Give me your new truck. You didn't make a payment. And we, spiritually speaking, we open the door to the repo man. And we let him into our hearts and we feel bankrupt all of a sudden because of what we've done. And what does that prove about where our salvation is based? It proves that we think that it's up to us, and the thing that the encouraging news that Paul gives to the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia is: Hey guys, let's remember how bad we are, and how good God was in the midst of that. That's the that's the best news you can get. So, so maybe for you this week, maybe an encouragement for you might be to look back at the dark spots of your life, the spots that you'd kind of carve out and say, Yeah, those are in a box over there. I don't ever want to talk about them again. And to be reminded of the faithfulness of God in the midst of those. That the covenant keeping his said love of God did not leave you in those moments. Would that bring you encouragement? It should. Because God's love didn't change in those moments. God keeps the demands of obedience to keep us in covenant with God in our place through the work of Jesus. This is why... We sing about Jesus so much in this church because without Jesus, we have no footing, we have no ground, we have nothing. We can do a lot of things without Jesus, we think, in this world. We can build a lot of cool stuff. We can have a lot of cool experiences. But it at the end of this world, none of it will be, none of it will last. Only what's done through Jesus lasts. And that's why we base everything on him. Lastly, because of, the, because of the fact that God's kept the promise, that Jesus has fulfilled the promise, church, we walk in the promise. Now, this idea of the resurrection we're going to get into a little bit more next week, uh, it's, it's really what changes everything about our walk with God. Because uh, if a man claimed to be perfect and he seemed to be perfect and he died, uh, that's sad, right? Right? But if a man claimed to be perfect and seemed to be perfect, and he died and he was raised from the dead, I mean that's defying the, 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 the the kind of the laws of life, right? That he could overcome death. Now, when you place your faith in him, we are carried through this, like we sang earlier, through this resurrected lifestyle that we get to experience the benefits of the resurrection, even though our physical bodies will die. We get to experience the benefits of the resurrection now, and we will get to experience them fully when Christ returns. So we started this morning by asking this question. What are the echoes of brokenness in our own life? What are the parts of our story that, that we wish weren't parts of our story? And what if the sovereign hand of God could redeem even those? What if he could? You know, it's, it's, it's funny because our story from the Bible starts with this covenant promise. We've talked about that. Do you know how the Bible ends It ends talking about the fulfillment of that promise, physically speaking. If you've got a Bible, flip over to Revelation 21 and listen to the language that is echoed and reverberated throughout the pages of Scripture. Revelation 21, 1 through 5 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea it was no more. And I saw the holy city near Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying what? Listen to the language here. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Okay. Isn't that the same story we've been hearing over and over and over again? God has been coming to us. He always has been coming to us. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be as their God. Is that not the same language that we see all the way throughout the Bible? I will be their God, and you will be my people. And what will the experience of this be like physically speaking? What are we longing for? What, is, what, what will it look like when, when the promise of God is actuated Physically. And we are eternal beings with eternal physical bodies. What will it be like? Well, he'll wipe away the tear from, tears from their eyes and death shall be no more. Why will death be no more? Because Jesus overcame death. And by faith in Jesus, we overcome death as well. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Those are all just teachers to us to long for eternity. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And God, they are trustworthy and true because you've never changed. So my question is, why would He start changing now? So I just want to give you a few things to kind of take away with you on what it looks like to walk in this promise. It's different than... It's different than wearing uh, rose-colored glasses, rose, rose-tinted shades. You, you, know, you know what that phrase means? It means that it's, it's kind of this idea that, hey, let's just be positive, everybody. Let's just look at the good stuff, right? Let's just put on the, the Elton John glasses or whatever. Um, let's, just, let's just look. This is this naive optimism that says, hey, life is just a bowl of cherries. It's just great. It's awesome. It's different than that. A, a life that walks in the Spirit that follows God, that walks in the promises, a life that has crimson stained glasses, that looks at all of life through the lens of the blood of Jesus because He's the one that's redeemed it all. Every part of your story, He's redeemed it all. And when you actually begin to believe that you don't have to be ashamed of who you are and what you've done because Jesus has covered you, you now have confidence to walk with God and be on His mission for the renewal of all things. That's what God wants to do through this church. It's what He wants to do through your life. And so what would it look like to, to, to walk this way? Walk this way. First thing is this. We, we would be aware. We, we, we are aware. So we look, we've talked about David. He's a, God, he's, a, he's a guy that was after God's own heart. He had a heart for God even though he had... A list full of sins. God did empower him to do some great things. But he also had some horrible failures. We become aware of everything in our lives. We, we are honest about where we've been. and We're honest about our stories. We don't, we, don't, we don't have to shellac over those things anymore. We don't have to put the rose-colored glasses on because we are aware that God has redeemed us in spite of ourselves because of how much he loves us. And what would this look like, practically speaking? Well, we would be more vulnerable as a church. Now, this is the most vulnerable church that I've ever been a part of. Um, I I don't don't think we have a general tendency to want to hide things. But I think God even wants to take us deeper. Because you know what happens when someone doesn't just tell about the highlight reel in their life, and you share life with them? You know what begins to happen is you begin to say, Wow, they're just as sinful as me. Maybe we could be friends. You know, what would that look like to put all of our lives on the table with one another? Well, it would be incredibly inviting, wouldn't it? Who wouldn't want to be around a person that knows they don't have their stuff together? You know, it's great. It's great because you see yourself and you see God's grace and you see and you believe that his love doesn't change. So we would be aware. We'd be aware of all of that. And we would walk more fully in His grace because when the when the inner defense attorney comes out inside of us and, and we want to we cover ourselves and, and make sure people don't know us, what, what we're doing is we're unintentionally making a grace-limiting move. We're, we're unintentionally not letting God into one part of our lives and not experiencing His redemption and the confidence that comes from being fully known by God. That's what happens in those moments. So church, we walk aware because of what God has done. We see His grace is the only thing that we can stand on through faith instead of a safety net when we blow it. It's the only thing we can stand on. Secondly, we're humble because of this. Did you notice in our text today how I talked about John the baptizer and how, how uh, he came as, one, as a predecessor to Jesus and he had this baptism of what? Repentance. Do you know what repentance is? It's a confession of all of the ways that you've blown it in hopes that you might receive forgiveness. And so John was preparing the way for Jesus so people might receive his grace. And and when people started to elevate John, the baptizer, he said, look, I'm not even worthy to untie the dirtiest part of this man's body, his sandals. Not even worthy to do that. And then he, he utters this phrase that I love. I must decrease, he must increase. Less of me, more of him. That's humility. That's what flows when you realize who's doing the work in redeeming and saving your soul. You're naturally more humble because God's done all the work and, and lastly we are uh, we are empowered. Should I hear the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 20 and 22? For all the promises, covenant, all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's Jesus. All of the promises of God find their yes in him. Everything that God has promised to us through the Word, there's hundreds of promises that He's promised to us, maybe thousands of promises that we cling to in the Bible, they all find their fulfillment in Jesus. And then he goes on to say this, that is why through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put His seal on us. That's 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 covenant language right there. Seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So what is he saying? How can we stand securely on this promise? The fact of the resurrection is this is that God has sealed us, meaning that that we can't expire. <laughs> this this word is true. And it's a guarantee as long as we walk out this life before Jesus returns that he will keep his promise. He will come through with His Word. Church, God has equipped you and I for every good work of faith that He's inviting us into. And He's given us power. And so many of us refuse to tap into the power that God has given us through His Spirit because we're still trying to live by our own effort. When you take that off the table, it frees you up. And that's what Paul is saying in his sermon next week. What would your life look like if you were free to serve God? Completely forgiven totally loved, nothing of your own doing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that that's our story, that's our narrative, that, uh, that you've saved us, you've redeemed us. You've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Father, that we loved the darkness, but by your grace, you have taught us to love the light. God, would you teach us even more deeply to trust in the light of the work of Jesus in our place for our resurrection. Father, I pray for those in this room right now that would say, you know, I'm in that John 3 passage, I'm, I'm on the condemned side of things, not the redeemed side of things right now because my life is totally about what I can do for God. I pray for those souls in this room right now. God, that you would show them the more free way to live, which is only through Jesus. The fulfillment of all things. So God, as we think about that, would you meet us? It's in Jesus' name. Amen.